Um, there's a video. I want to show the video. It's about a two-minute video, kind of walking on the street guy with a microphone, asking people what they think about hell. Very interesting. I want you to watch that right now and think about it. What do you think about hell? What's it like? I ain't never been, so I really can't tell you. <laughs> I really don't know off the top of my head. That's one that you got to think. One thing I can say is it ain't no fun after what, what, what the good books say. Something that we'll never know I, um, until you get there, I guess. Um, the eternal damnation. Fire. Uh, it's, it ain't nothing good. It's just one of those things that humans just have to fear. It's your greatest fears, really. Biblically, it's separation from God. Um, I think if you take... The absolute worst thing you've ever experienced on earth and multiply it by about an infinite amount of times, I think that's what hell's going to be like. In the pop culture, I guess, it's being thrown in the lake of fire and burning over and over. It's uh, very hot. Um, it's uh, not pleasurable. It's very unpleasant. Um, not a place I'd want to be. It's whatever is going to be miserable for you. It, it changes. It's more of a state of mind than a than an actual place that you can see it evolves i think the worst thing about hell is that it's going to be ongoing forever i think it's beyond our wildest fears you you want to die but you are not able to die or you want to like it's like you are in a between state like you are totally suffering and it's like a wound that never heals like it's, it's like that. It's pretty much the opposite of heaven. Heaven's our wildest imagination. Hell is our wildest fears. What types of people go to hell? Who knows? I think that there are sins that people commit here that's unforgivable. No idea? I have uh, ideas, but eh, they're not formulated into speech so far. If you you can make a bad choice, but then realize, like, hey, that was a bad choice. But if you're like, hey, that was a bad choice, and I love it, and that's how I want to live my life, then I guess that's the difference. Especially if you don't repent, man. I think them the type of people that go to hell, people who don't repent for their sin. So any sin that I don't repent for, or just the really unforgivable Man, see, that's where it starts getting a little tricky, ain't it? <laughs> people that commit mass genocide are definitely going to go to hell. What types of people go to hell? <laughs> Hopefully people that deserve to. Sinners, no. Or oh, bad sinners, no. Sinners that don't repent. People who make bad choices even though they know that they can be making good choices and just deny that they have better options. I feel like if you're good, that way you're bad, you know what I'm saying? You're going to go to heaven either way it goes. Bad people, I would say murderers, stuff like that. So who goes to hell? Only God knows that, you know, nobody knows. What kinds of people go to hell? Are those that don't believe in Jesus Christ. Well, that was a very interesting uh, video to me. don't know about you. Walking around, mostly young people. That they're talking about. And you see that the young people still have some semblance of what? The, there is a reality of hell after death. Didn't you catch that? Most of them did. They disagreed on its nature. They disagreed on um, who goes there. And of course, most of them seemed to talk as if they thought they were not. Did you catch that? What, what did you see in the video that struck you? You can, you can talk. It's okay. It's allowed. One that really didn't surprise me. 
Okay. Uh, seemed like the answers I would expect them to hear. Probably do it out way in the bag. It seems to be okay. consensus. Yeah, works salvation. But uh, if, if you do more good than bad, you'll be accepted by God. And of course, we all know that that's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is grace. It's God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And I don't know everybody here. See, that's the nice thing about doing this. I can say what I think, and I'm running out of town. <laughs> Pastor has to stay here with you. And if you're here, I don't know, don't know who you are. And if you have doubts about salvation, if you have doubts about forgiveness, whether God has forgiven you, you know, by all means, come talk to me this weekend or the pastors. You know, Christ came to save you. He came and died. He died on a cross, bore your sins as your substitute, was buried and rose again from the dead. And if you put your faith and your confidence in Him and Him alone, quit trusting yourself. Quit trusting your baptism. Quit trusting your good deeds. And trust only Him and what He did on the cross. Then God will come into your life, forgive you of all of your sins, and give you the righteousness of Christ. And you have a home in heaven. You become a born-again Christian. Uh, but sometimes it's portrayed as uh, you guys, you know, you've got to be like you. Right? You've got to be like me. In order to be saved, you got to accept Jesus like I did. But they missed the point. See, Jesus is the cure, and He's the only cure to that spiritual disease called sin. And if that was the only cure, and you don't, if you don't take the only cure, you don't make it. And so we are called into the world to witness to that and to share that. And part of our Discussions here today ought to motivate us. This is serious stuff. God is going to judge, and He is going to judge in a very stern way for eternity. And we have to keep that in mind as part of our witness. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's get into the lesson. Um, we're really today talking about the nature of hell in this first session. This first session will go way past the break. I anticipate breaks, um, well, depending on how much water and coffee I drink here, uh, the breaks will, might come every 30 minutes as we get going. I don't know. But I anticipate a break about an uh, hour and 15 minutes or so in, so about 10, 15. Uh, I'm not sure yet. Well, I have three sessions. First one on the nature of hell. Second one on the length of hell. The third one on special issues, and I have two issues there. One is based on the word theodicy, and I want to share some things from the book of Revelation. Because sometimes the question comes up, and nobody asks it, but it's in the background of that video, what gives God the right to do that? There are some answers for that in the book of Revelation. I want to give you three answers. What gives God the right to do that? The book of Revelation tells us. So I want to deal with that as a special issue. And if we have time, I'll talk about purgatory. But I'm leaving that to the last. If we run out of time, I'll just lop that off and not deal with that. <coughs> Pardon me. So let's get into the nature of hell. This will be the longest uh, of my lessons that I give you. Uh, and I want to start with biblical terminology. So if you go to the next slide, we're going to deal with what, is, what are the terms the Bible uses to describe this thing called hell. 
Okay, next slide. The first one is Sheol. And if you just to kind of advance, uh, just advance the slides there for the whole slide would be fine, I think. You see the word, the Hebrew word Sheol is a very controversial word. And one of the reasons for that is that it is a vague word. And a lot of our newer translations will translate it uh, just in a straightforward transliterated way. They'll just put Sheol there. That's the Hebrew word. They say Sheol rather than try to translate it. One of the reasons for it is that they do that is that it has different meanings. It has the word grave in Psalm 16, verse 10. Let's look at that passage. Psalm 16. If you remember, this is the passage in Acts chapter 2 that is applied to Jesus. It's a psalm of David. And in verse 10... 16, Psalm 16, verse 10, because you, let's back up to verse 9 to get a running start. And you remember when I give, um, we're going to look at individual verses a lot. And you need to remember there's a context for those. And we won't have the time to develop all the context. So when you study a passage, you really need to study it in the context of the whole book. Unfortunately, the Bible, other than Luke 16, there is not a lengthy passage in the Bible on hell. So you get little snippets of things. And we try to put it together the best that we can. In Psalm 16, verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave. Nor will you let your Holy One see Decay, And in Acts chapter 2, that passage is invoked concerning the Messiah, Jesus, whose body did not suffer decay, and he was raised from the dead. Very important passage on the resurrection. And this passage is used by Peter in his sermon in Acts 2 uh, to tell the crowd, here's, you know, here's a passage fulfilled in Jesus in some way. And there, it's clearly talking about grave, the body being buried. Then in Job 10, and by the way, about 65 times or so the word Sheol is used in the Bible, uh, and I'm just giving you a few examples. In Job 10, verse 21 22, let's back up again, running start, verse 20, are not my few days almost over? And the older I get, the more I feel that. I used to be the youngest guy. When my first church, I was the youngest guy in the church, just about. Before I was 33 years old in my first church. Now I'm the old guy. There's nobody older than me in my church. I maybe two people. Um, are, are not my few days almost over? Turn away from me so I can have a moment's joy. Before I go to the place of no return... To the land of gloom and deep shadow, to the land of deepest night, of deep shadow and disorder, where even the light is like darkness. Now, it's possible that he's using exaggeration to make an effect, but the language seems to suggest more than simply bones in a grave. That's the point. So it's kind of a shadowy afterlife. And there are many other verses like that as well. And then it carries the idea of the netherworld, the down underworld, 
sometimes a place of judgment. Let's go to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, verse 22. Now in context, Deuteronomy 28 is when God pronounced the blessings and curses. If you do what I say, Israel, I'll have all these blessings. And it's a short list. And then he says, if you don't do what I say, here's the list of curses, and it's a big list. One of those is you'll be thrown out of the land. But then Deuteronomy 29 through 32 talks about even when I have to judge you and throw you out of the land, Israel, I will bring you back in restoration. That's the point of those chapters. And in the middle of that, he's talking about his judgment on those who go against Israel. And he says, verse 22, for a fire has been kindled by my wrath, one that burns to the realm of death below. It will devour the earth and its harvest and set afire the foundations of the mountains. And so death below, Sheol below, carries the idea of down under the netherworld, and in this context, certainly a place of divine judgment. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's sometimes translated with the word Hades. And you've seen that word before. Let's look at a couple of other Old Testament passages before we leave the Old Testament. Isaiah 66. Verse 22. This is quite a way for a book to end. And I would encourage you as Christians to read books in one sitting. That's hard for Isaiah. That's easy for Jude or Obadiah. (laughs) Uh, but these 66 chapters of Isaiah really does help you if you read it all in one shot. And that's a, that's a Saturday project. But, you know, maybe try that. And slug your way through it. I think you'll see some benefit come to you from that. And at the very end, just like the last book, the last part of Malachi ends with a curse. Here, the last part, verse 22, As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, that's good, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. And they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. Now, there's some issues of what dead bodies mean there. But there's a worm that doesn't die. That comes up in the teachings of Jesus later on. And there's a fire that's not quenched. So there's a strong language there that really, I think, in the end time days, here's the good, here's the bad. Okay. And then Daniel 12, just wanted to throw that out to give a, uh, one of my favorite uh, books. Actually, my favorite book is what I remember reading at the time. (laughs) To be honest with you, God's Word is so good. But I I have an affinity for Daniel and Revelation. Verse 1, at that time, Michael, I like that name, Michael. (laughs) The great prince who protects your people will arise. 
Now, I take this as at the midpoint of the tribulation period, coming in from chapter 11, the king of the north against the king of the south, the Antichrist setting himself up in the, mid, in the pavilion there, the temple, I think. I think that's midpoint. And then here, at that time, when Antichrist turns on Israel, Michael stands up to protect your people, that's Israel. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. That's the worst time ever, that last three and a half years. The worst time. Later on in the passage it tells us it's three and a half years. But at that time your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life. And I take awaking there as coming up from the dead. Some to everlasting life, others to shame, uses the word shame, whatever that means, and everlasting contempt. So those are some of the passages from the Old Testament. Here, Sheol is not used in these two passages I gave you, but I wanted to share these two with you from the Old Testament as we go through. Move to the next slide, the Hades is the abode of the dead. Sometimes it's the abode of the lost. And let's go to Luke 16. Now, how many of you know Greek mythology? Two of you? If more of you had said that, I would say shame on you. <laughs> no, Greek mythology is okay to know. It's not okay to believe. Okay. Uh, in Greek mythology, you have three brothers. Zeus, have you heard of him? He's basically the god of the sky and kind of the top dog. He has a brother who's the god of the sea, Poseidon. He has another brother who is the god of the underworld. His name is Hades. So the term comes from real people, and of course the Greeks, the way they looked at things, they took people and, and, and eventually those terms became concepts in Greek thought. Now it's interesting to me that the, the underworld in Greek mythology, Hades, had some good sides to it. Anybody here watch the Gladiator movie? Like, you, you guys don't watch movies in this church? Um, in the Gladiator movie, uh, I have to be careful with my movie uh, illustrations. <laughs> uh, the Gladiator movie, he talks about Elysium. You know, tells the soldiers before the battle at the very beginning of the movie, uh, if you wake up and you're just in a field, everything's nice and sweet, don't worry, because you're dead. And you've gone to Elysium, that's the good side of Hades. Okay, where you're in f with all your dead relatives and you're, it's kind of their version of heaven. Okay, in their system, but it's in the underworld. And then there are other different, you know, if you have a, a map, it's kind of like take a map of the United States, we'll take a map of Hades. And there are different places, geographical places. We'll see one of them, Tartarus was one of them, which uh, Peter uses that word. In uh, a little bit later, we'll look at that. So these terms become current in the culture. And I think the Bible gives finalized meaning to that uh, in terms as God views them. 
in his use. And Jesus uses it here in Luke 16 in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus parable. It's not, doesn't really say it's a parable, does it? There's one manuscript that says it's a parable. It doesn't have to be a parable. In fact, uh, it would be the only parable where somebody is actually named. You know, Lazarus is named. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, my NIV here says hell, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Now there's several things we have to address here. This is the lengthiest passage on the afterlife in the entire Bible. Where you give concentrated teaching. It's the lengthiest passage. And of course it's not about the end time days, lake of fire. <coughs> no, it's about the intermediate state. Now, what happens if you die now, between now and the resurrection? Say if I were to die today, my body would be in the grave... And my spirit, no, we're not Jehovah's Witnesses, and we're not Seventh-day Adventists. Our spirit, to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. So we go to be with the Lord, my spirit. My body's in the grave, and my spirit, separated from my body, goes to be with the Lord. And that's what's happened here, I think. Now, it's possible it's in the netherworld and Jesus changes some things. Uh, I really don't want to get into that unless it's during the Q&A that we deal with that. But the point is, in spirit form, there is the experience of certain things that appear to us like physical senses. Isn't that what the text says? The rich man dies, was buried. Lazarus dies, was buried. The rich man wants Lazarus to come and put water on his tongue because he's tormented in flames. There is a sensation for his spirit body or his spirit form. It's not a physical body, but it has form and it has sensation. That's the way Jesus presents it. Now we can choose to accept that or try to come up with some other way to explain it away. But at face value, that's what he is doing. Another thing that just we really can't leave here without talking about is the fact that's very important in Luke's gospel, which emphasizes the poor. Jesus says an awful lot about the poor. In Matthew, when he says, blessed is the poor in spirit. 
in Luke, blessed are the poor. Jesus says a lot of things about the poor. And one of the reasons he does that is that the Jews had a problem. In fact, they have the same problem that many Christians today have. It's called prosperity theology. It is the belief that if I am accepted by God and I am doing what I'm supposed to be doing, that God will bless me with wealth and health now. Now, let's, let's face it. If that were true, ultimately nobody would die. I mean, the ultimate sense. And nobody argues for that. But that's a problem in the book of Job, right? Job's friends come. Okay, what sin did you do that caused you to have all this bad stuff happen to you? And isn't that what we think sometimes? When things go bad, God must be judging me. And when things go good, God likes me. Jesus turns that upside down and said, don't think that way. Now, sometimes that might be true that God's blessing and that God's judging. But that's not always the case. Prosperity theology should not be part of our thinking. We'll be very careful there about that. And here he turns it upside down. See, the Jews thought this way. Okay, God will accept the rich. They're already, we know they're saved. Why? Because God has already demonstrated he likes them. No, he hasn't. Just because nice things are happening to them in this life does not mean that God has accepted them. And so Jesus wants to make sure that we have that right. But he uses that word Hades to talk about the bad side of the afterlife. Now, I personally think Abraham's bosom in this passage is probably heaven, but that's another debated thing. But Jesus uses Hades, that term, of the afterlife, the bad afterlife, where there is torment uh, and fire and judgment upon those who are lost. Let's go to the third word, which is the word Gehenna. If you advance it to the next slide, uh, you have a picture of the Valley of Hinnom. Now, this is a nice picture. Mark, where are you at? Mark, did you ever go there, to the Valley of Hinnom, when you were in Israel? Yeah. Now, this, I picked out the prettiest picture for that. That's a lot bigger than this, and there's a lot more there. But that used to be a place where the, Jew, where the nation of Israel got into pagan sacrifices and sacrificed their children. The word Hinnom is where Jesus, it's, a, it's where the word Gehenna comes from. Okay, let's look at Jeremiah 7. Seven verse thirty. The people of Judah, Jeremiah seven verse thirty. The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They have set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. Okay, so they put idols in the temple. They had built the high places of Topheth, false god, in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. 
So beware the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call it Topheth or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter. For they will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. Then the carcasses of this people will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness and the voices of bride and bridegroom in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, for the land we become desolate. At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings and officials of Judah, the bones of the priests and prophets, and the bones of the people of Jerusalem will be removed from their graves. They will be exposed to the sun and the moon and all the stars of the heavens, which they have loved and served and which they have followed and consulted and worshipped. They will not be gathered up or buried, but will be like refuse lying on the ground. Wherever I banish them, all the survivors of this evil nation will prefer death to life, declares the Lord Almighty. Now here's God talking through Jeremiah. This is before the Babylonian captivity. Babylon is coming over the hill, soon to siege Jerusalem and destroy the city and eventually the temple. Remember the story, there are three deportations, three times that Babylon comes in. Uh, and he's saying that when they, they come in, they're going to take them. They're going to empty some of the graves and throw the king's bones out in this valley and burn them. And why did God, why is God setting it up for those kings that to happen to them because of the idolatry of the people? They had used that very spot as a place to offer their children by fire to the false gods. And so that place becomes a symbol of evil. Now, we do know later that it becomes a garbage dump, you know, that burns, keeps burning forever, or at least you think it's forever as you're a person there. There's nothing, that's not there now. They've cleaned all that out, obviously. But that, that came over into the word Gehenna as the place of fire. And in Jesus' use of it, the place of final fire. Let's go to the next slide. And I'll go ahead and advance it to the two passages I have. Mark 9. Let's look at Mark 9. Forty-two to forty-eight. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell. There's Gehenna, where the fire never goes out. So the fire is eternal. See. Some of the guys we'll see later, they argue that the word eternal doesn't mean forever. But here, it doesn't use the word eternal. It gives another description where the fire never goes out. Well, you know what? That's forever. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into Gehenna where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Remember Isaiah 66. Their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Rather strong passage. Let's go to Luke 12. 
I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into Gehenna. Yes, I tell you, fear him. In this passage, he doesn't describe fire, but he uses that term, and and I think everyone would know it's a place to fear. And then there's a fourth term. Next slide is Tartarus. Go ahead and put the passage up there. Second Peter two four. Second Peter two four. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, my NIV says, or Tartarus is the, he, the, the Greek word there, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare, etc. So he's talking about angels, the fallen angels, some of them at least. We know it's not all of them because Satan's on the loose with a few. So they sent them to Tartarus. At this time, probably Tartarus is just a synonym for Gehenna. Remember, it's one of the places that the word carries with it, the idea of being terrified. It's a place of being terrified. And in the map of Hades in the Greek mythology, it's one of the geographical locations within Hades. And Jesus refers to angels being in Tartarus, probably a synonym here for hell or Gehenna. Now those are the those are the terms that are used, and we saw the passages that are kind of the initial passages. Let's look into the characterization of hell and its nature. There's several points that we want to go through. Let's look at number one. It is a place of outer darkness. Outer darkness. Let's look at Matthew eight. There are actually three passages there out of Matthew. I'll just read one of them to save time. But you have the others there to study in Matthew 8. And in Matthew, Jesus says an awful lot about hell. As a matter of fact, I used to be an aerospace engineer. That's how I paid for seminary. (laughs) I worked on F-16 jet fighters. And I was in an engineering group of about 25 guys working on a particular cockpit computer for F-16s. And my boss, who was a nominal Presbyterian guy, not saved, asked me to make a presentation to these 25 engineers on what I was working on, kind of update them. So we go in a conference room. It's about an hour-long presentation. Back in the days of the overheads and projectors. You guys know what an overhead projector is? Yeah, we haven't seen one of those in a long time. Slapping the old slides up there. In the middle of my presentation, it's a very technical presentation, and my boss stops me in the middle, raises his hand, says, Mike, I have a question. So I'm thinking, okay, technical question about what I'm doing. He says, Mike, is the God of the Old Testament the same as the God of the New Testament? (laughs) Now, they knew I was in seminary. My boss, I think, was trying to embarrass me. And my answer was, the last time I read it, it they, they were the same. And then I went on with my presentation. 
<laughs> there is that view that the God of the Old Testament is this harsh meanie, and the God of the New Testament is sweet Jesus. But who is it that mentions hell more than any other person in the Bible? It's a landslide. It's Jesus. The most graphic descriptions are on the lips of sweet Jesus. And which book, which old, which testament is the book of Revelation in? It's the New Testament. There is grace in the Old Testament. Read the Psalms. You can't get away from grace. And there's judgment in the New Testament. So don't let people con you with that. That's been out there since the second century as an idea. Uh, it's absolutely wrong. Yeah, so don't let them mess you up with your mind on that. But in uh, Matthew, well, I better get the right book. I'm in John here. In Matthew 8, Eleven. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Now, he's just had a centurion who trusts the Lord beyond measure. And, of course, a centurion, I think it's pretty clear in the text, in the context here, he is not a Jew. So he's a Gentile. And Jesus turns around the crowd and says, he has more faith than any Jew I've ever met. Do you know how insulting that would be to the Jews, the crowd there? I mean, Jesus didn't, I mean, sweet Jesus. Sometimes he is in your face. Now, sometimes you've got to be careful with that. We can't do that. You and I can't pull it off because we're not God. So we better be careful. There's a time and a place when you slam somebody up against the wall and talk about them and try to put the fear of the Lord into them. There are other kinds when you have to win them over by persuasion and love. You've, and you take some time, sensitivity to the Spirit of God, to, to know which one is the right thing to do with any given individual. You have to pray hard and think hard about that. But that's, that's what happens here. And then he says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, i.e., the nations around, not the Jews, the Gentile nations. And will take their places at the feast, I think he's talking about the kingdom, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, the coming kingdom. But the subjects of the kingdom, I think that's a code phrase for Jews, many Jews will be thrown outside. I don't think he means all Jews. I think it's the Jews in the context who think they are saved. They think they are sons of the kingdom. They'll be thrown outside into the darkness outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then you have two other times in Matthew 22, is a, a parable of the marriage, one of the marriage parables, and then 25, the judgment of the nations passage, which we'll come back to. So it's a place of outer darkness. It's also a place of weeping and sorrow. Now, if you notice, it says there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that passage that we just read. Weeping. So my third point, it's a place of gnashing of teeth. Now what does gnashing of teeth mean? Have you ever been so angry that you felt it in your teeth? You clenched your teeth, you were so angry? Has that happened to you? No, you guys are just sweet all the time. 
Um, in Acts 7.54, remember the, the guys who got mad at Stephen's sermon, so mad that they stoned him to death, they said they gnashed their teeth. I think that means they clenched their teeth strongly and were grinding them in anger. That's the idea. And so what that tells us, that in hell... There is gnashing of teeth, that is, there is the ongoing presence of anger on the part of those who are in hell. Next slide, we go to number four. There is a lack of comfort and the presence of torment for the inhabitants. We already saw Luke 16. Let's, let's go to a different passage. Let's go to Revelation 14. And this talks about the lake of fire, the final place. <clears throat> Verse 9. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur. That's the old fire and brimstone phrase, burning sulfur. In the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. How long is that? There is no rest, just in case, no rest day and night for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. A little, a little aside here. Uh, one time I'm in my office and um, a guy visits me from, he's a teacher at Andrews University in Michigan. That's the, one of the major schools among the Seventh-day Adventists. And he comes, he has a sister who lives in Scranton. And her husband was a teacher at the University of Scranton, a Roman Catholic fellow. And he brings that guy with him and he comes into my office and he wants to know if Baptist Bible Seminary will accept a Seventh-day Adventist into our Ph.D. program. Now, the first thought that popped into my mind was, of course not. But I decided to have a little fun. I said to him, well, how evangelical are you? I'm using that term in the best possible way. Bible-believing Christian. How evangelical are you? He says, I'm very evangelical. I said, okay, let me ask you a couple questions. Do you believe that the writings of Ellen G. White are equal in authority to the Bible? She's the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist. And he was a classical. There is one strain, you know, like six splits off of the Seventh-day Adventist, and all those splits have had others come off. You know, One of those splits is, was, is a grace movement. They got salvation right. You know, but the classical guys, they're in work salvation. Well, well he ducked my question about uh, her writings. Then I ask him about this passage. If anyone worships the beast, now in classical Seventh-day Adventist 
theology, worshiping on Sunday is the mark of the beast. How many of you worship on Sunday? Okay. According to them, you have the mark of the beast. And according to this passage, those who have the mark of the beast, where do they end up? So I ask him. And by that time, I'm really just, I'm really witnessing to that Catholic guy he brought. I said, and I said to him, do you believe that worshiping on Sunday is the mark of the beast? And those who have the mark of the beast are going to hell. Do you believe that? He ducked my question and won't answer it. And I never said, no, we'll never accept you. But he walked out of there knowing we would not accept him. Interesting. This passage is really clear. The problem with the doctrine of hell is not clarity. The problem with hell is its harshness. And we'll talk about that more as we go on a little bit. Uh, Let's go to the uh, uh, next one there. Uh, we, We can add Revelation 20. We'll come back to that verse later. Number five, it's a place designed specifically for the devil and his angels. Let's look at Matthew 25. In Matthew 25... Come down to verse 41. We'll be in this section uh, later as well. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire. How long is eternal? Forever. Fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the initial purpose of this place was for the devil and his angels. You say, well, how come people end up there? Because they've identified with Satan and his ways. From Genesis 3 on. Then number six. Let's go to Revelation 20. a place of fire and brimstone. Verse 15. Doesn't use fire and brimstone there, but uh, the whole idea of the burning fire, the burning sulfur. Uh, If you back up a a bit, there it is, verse 10, it's there. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur That's fire and brimstone, the old King James language, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, I do have a couple of other passages, but let's go to Matthew 3, the one I have at the end of that. Matthew 3.
This is a difficult passage, but I I thought we would look at it briefly. In 3.12, you know, we have the place where John the Baptist says to them, uh, I will baptize you, verse 11, I'll baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, classical Pentecostalism relates this fire here to the tongues of fire in Acts chapter 2. And so that's why they pray for the fire to come down. Acts 2, and they look at this. Holy Spirit baptizes you, the Holy Spirit and with fire. And sometimes they put those together. It's the Holy Spirit, even fire. And there, there are other uh, non-charismatic, non-Pentecostals who see fire and spirit as talking about the same thing. Although I have trouble with that because of verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with, what's the word? Unquenchable fire. So I think the fire in the passage is you know, maybe the Holy Spirit coming in judgment, but there's also the Holy Spirit coming in a positive way. Uh, and he, but here, though, the fire seems to be this ongoing, unending judgment that John the Baptist says the Messiah is going to do. So there's a permanent fire that cannot be put out. Let's go to the next slide and number seven. It is the home of the wicked. We've seen that already. And it is a place where there are levels of punishment. A place where there are levels of punishment. Uh, I didn't give any verses there. I should have. Just totally slipped my mind. Um, the Bible does teach us that there are... Is it on your notes? What, what, which verses did I give you? Matthew eleven twenty one. you said? There are several places we could go. Verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, if the miracles that are performed in you have been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that are performed in you have been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. Wow. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. I don't think he's saying Sodom won't get theirs. He's just saying there's, there are levels of, levels of judgment, levels of punishment. Don't know exactly how that works. But the same way, there are levels of rewards in the kingdom. You rule over ten cities, you rule over five cities, Luke 19 tells us. So there are levels to these things. Okay, this is a good point, I think, to take a break.